and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a huge returning guest, one of the greatest of all time, you may know him from the band The Butthole Surfers. You may know him from the band The Melvins. You may know him from Daddy Longhead or Honky. Or you may even know him from his own incredible banjo solo records, which, which we'll talk about in a second. J.D. Jeffrey Pincus returns to the show. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can also find me on various forms of social media, at Damien, only Twitter and Instagram, but that's, that's various. Uh, you can support the show by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that you know that you enjoy this podcast and we, what we talk about on it. Uh, you can also subscribe to it and rate it or head over to turnedoutapunk.com and grab a t-shirt. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who has done that. It's very much appreciated uh, for you to support this podcast. Thank you. Uh, speaking of supporting things, I play in a band called Fucked Up. You can check us out or support us in some way. Over at fuckedup.cc, we have a bunch of new records coming out, uh, and we're going to be going on some some shows in Canada in January, in February, and then we've got a lot more stuff coming up in the spring. But head over to fuckedup.cc to find out more information on all of that. Um, yeah, a lot of a lot of records. We put out a lot of records last year. We got more coming out next year. We're just a uh, fucked up. We are in the content business and that content is music and that music is on the record and you can get it over there. There we go. That's my ad. And they say I'm not good for uh, sponsorship. All right. On to today's show. As I said off the top, today on the show, returning to the show, Jeffrey Pincus, a.k.a. J.D., he is someone who I'm a huge fan of through his various bands that he's played in over the years and someone that I've always wanted to have back on the show. And now it has finally happened. He was on, of course, before with the rest of the Melvins when he was playing with the Melvins way back when I, don't know, I should check the number. It'll be in the description. You can find it there. Uh, but he is a brand new solo record in addition to playing with, with other bands as well. But he's a brand new solo record, Fungus Shway on Shimmy Disc. Available now. It is fantastic. It's him with the banjo, and yeah, he's just a uh, a very very uh, interesting musician. Always pushing things in new ways, and I, I think this stuff's fantastic. His new stuff is awesome. And that's it. I don't want to ramble on. Uh, this is a fun one. Yeah, sit back, relax, and enjoy Jeffrey Pincus on Turned Out a Punk. <laughs> J.D. Pincus, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back again. Good morning to you. Well, it is a honor to have you back. I think uh, I've wanted to have you on the show one-on-one one -on -one like this for a long time. Last time you were on, it was Buzz and Dale and yourself 
and uh, there's so much more stuff I've learned about Atlanta punk rock that I want to hit you on, and and oh, right on. tons of butthole stuff too. So uh, this is this is gonna be a fun one. But I gotta, uh, I guess I don't have to ask you how you got into punk. I remember hearing it last time with you and your friend getting into it together. But I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about this band that I've come to learn about from Atlanta. That's legend looms large in my mind. The Restraints. Did you ever see this? Oh band? my God, Chris Wood and the Restraints. Wacka wacka wacka. Oh yes. man, yeah. I try and tell people about them, man, and his whole story is just bizarre. Uh, but yeah, they were so far ahead of their time, man. Uh, Chris Wood was, uh, I and mean, I was, I was, you know, younger than those than those folks were. So that was about the time of Freddie Vomit and Wee Wee Pole, and uh, there were some really cool bands that were out around that time. But uh, but he really like I can't be a nun. I mean that's got to be one of the most classic songs that ever came out of Atlanta. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and I think the thing about that band that I've come to like I first learned about him from Pylon when Pylon was on the show. They were talking about how this band had this really bad reputation, but they got along with them. And then in reading about them, I've really come to come to understand that they're almost like uh, they were described as the Gigi Allen of the South. I, I would think that would kind of be the, the case, except for he didn't throw shit. He would just uh, inject his insulin into his scalp, uh, you know, like on, on a TV interview. He'd just, like, shoot up his insulin into his head and, you know, little stuff like that that no one else was doing. People might find weird. But uh, well, the, the stuff that came on came about later in his career and, uh, uh, you know, I was, wasn't trying to kill her. I was trying to see how close I could get to her with my gun, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was that was a little heavier than Gigi, actually. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It ended, I think, uh, well, not that Gigi didn't end pretty tragically, but this ended pretty horrifically. Uh, yeah, more unexpectedly, I'd say. Yeah, what, Gigi, we kind of all expected that. Well, yeah, I guess like going back to, you know, before the, the end, obviously, there were, I've seen footage where he's got a gun on stage and he's he's waving around a pistol while they're playing was that an influence on you guys later on with gibby and the shotgun at all or is that just completely I, coincidental i really don't think gibby ever even heard of the restraints <laughs> I, I don't honestly i don't think those guys have ever, i don't think that's ever come up uh that was something that was part of my childhood when they moved out there that was uh they didn't move out there i when i joined them they had left Athens and they were staying at the Metroplex and I was living in Atlanta. Uh, so and, uh, they, they didn't really, other than what they learned at the Metroplex, so like the bands like Neon Christ and DDT, uh, those were like our staple house bands out there. And, uh, and everybody else that came through, like this was a little later, you know, in time after, after the restraints and stuff. Uh, but they, I don't think they even ever heard of it. I'm sure they would have loved it. Uh, but I really don't think that was part of their, their life or part of the equation. So were the restraints kind of like a, a first wave band? Like, would have they been part of the same scene as DDT? Because DDT is like an older band too, right? Well, DDT, uh, my band, uh, Daddy Longhead, has Jimbo Young, the guitar player from DDT in it. And uh, they, they just play, it was either them or Neon Christ to open all the Metroplex shows. Uh, the uh, I would say, you know, restraints were there before the Metroplex was, I mean, they had their own scene going. Uh, you know, it wasn't, you know, these these bands like DDT and Neon Christ were, uh, were part of that Metroplex scene. Restraints would play anywhere and there would be, you know, they were just, uh, they were, it was more before that scene was created. 
they played Metroplex, of course, but uh, but they kind of had their own thing going before that, as far as my recollection goes. I find it fascinating because you brought up like Wee Wee Pole and the fact that you have Atlanta. Like, and I, think, and I, don't, I don't think a lot of the punk rock from Atlanta gets celebrated in sort of the punk rock canon. Nah. No, it, it doesn't. And we got, you know, I mean, we got everything four years, like everything from the West Coast wouldn't hit us until four years later. Mm. Uh, we didn't, we didn't, you know, we weren't uh, like, uh, I mean, there were, there were bands that were definitely groundbreaking, but yeah, didn't get any recognition. Uh, but, you know, we, we got the East Coast bands, all the uh, initial bands like GI, DI, STD. Or say marginal man that was one of my faves back then uh, scream would come through you know we get a lot of east coast stuff reagan youth uh just a lot of stuff that would travel down that was a long drive to go from dc to to atlanta to do a show you know it was, it was kind of a different world no social media you know we had the fanzines kicking back then uh we had record stores like you know uh wax tracks and uh and uh 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 uh, uh yeah, uh, we had some uh, lots of lots of places that you would go and find out your your information about what was going on. Now it's just so easy to do that stuff. Uh, you know, depending on who you you know what you follow on your social media uh, and what algorithm you're in. But so I, uh, that was uh, we, there's a reason I think why a lot of bands. I saw Ozzy Osbourne play his first solo show uh, with Def Leppard back when they had Ten Arms and sucked. No, I'm kidding. I actually liked him back then. Uh, it's a high and dry album uh, that that they were touring under. But a lot of bands uh, would start their tour in Atlanta because it was a big city. We had press, but it wasn't like in L.A. or New York or anything like that. So they could play a big theater, uh, work out the kinks. Uh, if it went south, uh, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, that it would uh, it would be it would be uh, okay. They could fix it by the time they got to the big money towns you know so we got a lot of cool like things come through first like the pistols right that's the first pistol show mm -hmm. in america yep exactly um it's funny too talking to like you know b-52s and stuff like how much of an impact going to that show and that show had on atlanta like it almost feels like but it's weird because i think the b-52s were kind of already going by that point or at least experimenting it but it, with music at that point but it feels like the sex puzzle show really kick-started something there obviously oh, before yeah. your time yeah i mean it's just the fact that you didn't have to be i mean it's kind of the same thing that uh nirvana did to the glam rock scene you know you don't have to dress up you don't have to do your hair here's a catchy riff check it out it's powerful you're gonna like it and uh then all of a sudden everybody's you know it's the same reason why you know uh you know this isn't born a mod because not everybody has enough money to be a mod you know i, don't, mm -hmm. I didn't know too many kids that could afford a suit when i was growing up or a vespa for that matter <laughs> but they were there uh but uh but yeah i mean it was, it was much easier uh to get involved and feel accepted when uh there wasn't some kind of look or scene or something that you had to be in it was more diy you know uh i mean shit even rem I remember when their first EP came out and my friends had that on cassette tape. I got it on cassette tape. I, that's from back when I would co collect cassette tapes. I had Roar cassette, uh, Roar from DC. That was some of the best of the, the Bad Brains, uh, the yes. Flipper, everything that, that, that they had, I collected off of, off of cassettes. But I remember REM had their, uh, their 
six i think it was like a six song ep and and from what i from what i've heard since then i don't know if it's true uh that that peter bucket only played for six months and that's you know depressing to people that went to uh the guitar institute of technology and really inspiring to people like me who pretty much taught themselves how to play you yeah. know it's, you know so that's and so I think those were both groundbreaking. All, all of those bands are groundbreaking in their own way. But I think the DIY and being able to uh, feel comfortable with just being yourself and doing stuff is uh, is kind of what inspired a generation of music that, that we all love. Absolutely. Were you into all the stuff that was coming out of Athens, like, you know, before REM yeah. and, and all the pylon and all that stuff? No, I, I listened to it. I was a young kid. I, anybody that would put something out... Uh, I would I would listen to uh, REM was actually listenable back then I thought uh, uh, but yeah I didn't listen to Love Tractor or Pylon or <laughs> any of that stuff uh, and it was kind of like that was kind of we did have a little bit of a clicky scene I guess that way I mean you couldn't really like you know I mean, you could I mean nobody cared but uh, you know uh, I think we were we were a lot clickier back then than we'd like to think. Uh, I mean, this, the band DDT had a song called Last Train to Clarksville, uh, which was uh, a reference to the Athens bands. And, uh, you know, we, we all like DDT. So, you know, we didn't we didn't like the bands that they made fun of on that song. <laughs> was that stuff kind of looked at as being, you know, new wave or, or just like something completely different? I don't know. You know, I think it was it was more that it was like people trying to be pop and accepted as opposed to people that didn't give a shit i think it was more of an attitude kind of thing uh you know like I, I don't think uh the punk rock scene in atlanta was trying to to break new ground necessarily just trying to kind of like uh uh be represent what we were doing and uh and i wasn't actually part of that scene so much as i was a supporter i was i was in some weird bands back then uh that were not punk rock uh they were they were definitely weird and didn't fit in but uh uh, but I never was in a grindcore, you know, kind of, I was never in a metal band. Well, honky is about the closest thing to a metal band I've ever been in. But, uh, and that's, that's thanks to our beloved guitar player, Bobby. <laughs> well, I want to talk honky. Cause I like, that was the stuff that I got into. And I, and it was funny cause like, you know, obviously this is pre putting the pieces together, but I had no idea there was any sort of connection between honky and butthole surfers at the time. I was just like a man's ruin collector. Oh yeah, yeah, and and then we got to like you know our last two records were mixed by uh, by Paul from the Butthole Surfers, and uh, you know as, as my friend Danny Barnes said one time, which I I can't, he he doesn't know where he got it from, but uh, he said somebody said don't get famous at something you don't like, and uh, I'm not saying Paul doesn't like the music that he's done before, but I will say that when he had the chance to mix Honky that. Uh, he goes, oh, wow, guitars. I forgot about those. So, you know, that's, uh, yeah, once, once you get famous doing something, people, more people want to sound like that, and you, you get sucked into that world. And that's what Danny Barnes uh, was talking about. And, and he's, he's got lots of words of wisdom. He doesn't know where they came from. I think one was, uh, uh, he did know where this one came from, but it was the, uh, the shade from a toothpick beats the burning of the bright old sun any day. And uh, I, I I just love that. Yeah, that's very true. Those are wise <laughs> words, actually. Absolutely. Um, when when Paul was on the show, he talked about kind of the bands 
weird obsession with REM. Uh, yeah, puddle surfers. Yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was their obsession with REM. I joined them, you know, like right after all that stuff. Uh, and yeah, I played. We played a show in in Athens, right? That was actually, I think, the first show, January 10th, '86, as my first show with them in Athens. And then we played '688, I believe. That's the order it went in. Uh, first show was actually Jack Officers. If it was the uh, Athens one, because we just banged our crotch with uh, trigger mics and had a four track of Davy and Goliath episodes. Uh, <laughs> That's hey, Davy. Hey, Davy. Yeah, that kind of shit going on. And that was because we wanted to have the money of the opening band and we didn't want to have to move our gear. So it was a lot easier if we could just call ourselves the Jack Officers and hit ourselves in the crotch for 30 minutes. Uh, but uh, uh, so the, the, we, I remember we put a bunch of, we, we started covering the song, The One I Love, but we called it One Eyed Love. And we, I remember we put 40, uh, not 40, we put a, uh, a bunch of cans of orange crush all over the bar, hoping that those guys would show up at one of our shows, which they didn't. <laughs> I heard Michael Mills almost came to my show uh, that I played in Athens the other night, but uh, but that would be a reunion like none other because I don't really know the guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's funny too because uh, I think Peter Buck has always you know been a huge fan of the band The Frantics and. And stuff like that. So you you imagine there would have been a uh, some sort of kinship or some sort of like you know well, admiration. Okay, I will. I, I, it's coming back to me now that Gibby was a little upset about uh, REM. I remember there was one video. Uh, maybe your producer can call it up. No, I'm kidding. Uh, one video. One, one Let me video just get all these keys. <laughs> one video with uh, Michael Stipe. I think he dropped drawer and he's got a megaphone and there's films behind him. And I think Gibby took offense to the fact that maybe uh, that was a Bismarck key moment for Michael Stipe uh, on the butthole surfers uh, <laughs> smelling, smelling what we were stepping in and, uh, and bringing it to the masses before that we were accepted to do that. Well, I, you know what, just, you know, I'm jumping way ahead here, but when that moment does come, when butthole is Butthole surfers are finally accepted by the masses. I think that was such a huge, it was such a huge moment because like you're talking about, not every kid could afford to be a mod. Not every kid could afford to be a metalhead or even a punk to get the leather jacket right. and stuff in that way. But, right. but butthole surfers <laughs> made it acceptable just to be a true freak. And I think uh, I heard somebody tell me that uh, butthole surfers made them feel like it was okay to be themselves. And, uh, and that's, that's why I don't hang out with, fans of butthole surfers <laughs> that's a safe, <laughs> a safe way to go it, it's funny when uh chris from negative approach was on the show uh actually i don't think you've talked about it on the show i think it was him and i talking uh before we recorded the episode he was talking about the first time he saw butthole surfers come through detroit and this is before you joined the band but just how it was a liberating experience seeing a band that was that free on stage and that continues like even like <laughs> some of the Lollapalooza footage it's like you don't see bands kind of go up there on a stage like that and just you know look like they're having fun in that way like was it fun being on stage oh yeah no I, I love it man uh, there's, there's something to, I mean I, I, you know that you can take the the love or the hate from the crowd 
and and turn that into something special as long as you're getting the energy from the crowd i mean and i I say that because you know and then i'll switch gears and go to like the melvins they would you know to me before i was in the band and everybody that goes to a melvin's show now loves them except for maybe their girlfriends but uh (laughs) but back in the day when the melvins were doing melvinsy things uh and playing with a bunch of people uh that might not like you know opening for tool or whatever they could feed off of the hatred of uh the crowd wanting to see tool and telling them to shut up or to play faster or to do whatever they were doing and they would feed off of that energy energy's energy you know you're, mm-hmm. you're gonna feed off of it and give it back to them uh you know i, I just got off a tour doing banjo for five weeks in front of helmet clutch and uh quicksand crowd. And some of the times they didn't even know there was going to be this fucking weird banjo dude starting the set off, you know? Yeah. Or, or, or uh, my genre of music, uh, I can't use paper, scissors, rock because my buddy already used that, but the, it's the kind of music you listen to when you go through a metal detector is what I figured out. But I think it was, it was a good it was a good response from the crowd. I fed off the energy of the good response. I did not have I, I will tell you there were more people when I finished than that when I started every night. And that's all I could judge things by. Not that I care and I don't even open my eyes usually when I play. So but uh but you know to to be able to feed off of the energy and uh, to have that in any way, shape, or form is great. I think it was challenging for especially Gibby uh, to do the Lollapalooza tour because, uh, you know, we, we had, you know, video smoke, strobe lights, all these things that were meant for nighttime. And here we are playing at four o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, he, being ever the entertainer, uh, figured out ways to, to, to do what to pull off making a crowd uncomfortable mm-hmm. you know back in the days when you could point a shotgun at the crowd and you won't get shot by the cops it, it's interesting too to like contrast the melvins to butthole surfers and the approach to playing live like and, and once again you know this way better than i do i'm just like speaking completely as someone that's a fan but it seems like the melvins are not that the melvins are never not are never not amazing and entertaining that's always amazing and entertaining but it's like the melvins are going to be doing what the melvins are doing if it's no one there whereas it seems like the butthole surfers there was that element of providing a show and putting on an entertaining show for the audience like there's a little more i don't want to say showmanship but like a commitment to the craft of of being an entertainer yeah i think that's you know i mean all honesty i think that's what kind of like every time we got back together to try and do some stuff uh those, you know, some of what was missing. Uh, I don't think people will ever see the butthole surfers that we used to be up through. And I'll even give Lollapalooza in there, but I don't even want to put that in there. Is there? But uh, back in the day when we did our theater shows uh, and had three projectors and, uh, you know, a, a dancer that no one knew was a guy or a girl and, you know, he, she naked with aluminum foil on, on his, her, teeth standing upside down uh, on a, a pedestal to nowhere uh you know with with everything we had going on um you know it's, it's just now it'd be a reenactment with uh people reminiscing about the songs and if they saw us before it would be memories 
but uh, even the people that do the videos for us uh, don't seem to capture the essence of what we went for. Like I saw a lot of just everybody wanted to shock everybody with some gross stuff. And we would mix like, you know, a penis reconstruction movie uh, that we played backwards uh, with aquarium stuff. Or we would have a pork processing plant and the pigs would all come back together. You know, there was, there was, there was different things than just like, you know, then you know showing showing gore stuff to people and trying to shock them and and once you give control of that kind of stuff to other people uh you know you kind of lose that part of it and i don't know i think to me it'd be hard to hard to capture that i hope there's a you know young band that's going out there and doing that stuff uh but yeah i miss the days of of where a crowd would feel actually scared or uncomfortable to be watching a show and to me that's you know i've never been a one that likes bands that preach at people uh as we talked about before i think last episode like you know to me circle jerks and angry samoans were bands that you know like cracked me up and you know brought like this other side of punk rock music around instead of uh political stuff that everybody already you know was thinking you know you don't need to be reminded i don't need to hear a song about it dead kennedys i'm just kidding (laughs) it's uh uh, yeah, I just I, I I don't need to hear MTV get off the air when I have time to listen to music. I want something that's going to wipe my brain of everything that that uh, that's on my mind that I don't want to think about. I want to break from things for a minute. I want to be entertained. And I think that's uh, 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 luckily it wasn't an important division in punk rock music, but it was definitely one that uh, that. Uh, that when looking back on it now, there was quite a division and and the free spirited art related kind of, you know, anything goes music versus, hey, you know, we're on this side and, and here you, this is our point. You should listen to this. And if you like them, then you judge that, you know, if you like their music, you judge that you like their lyrics. You know, mm-hmm. that's uh, that, it was a different different scene back then that way. And I never really paid attention to the divisiveness in it until I would say I like something, so I'm gonna point something out, and uh, and I guess I was a, a punk rock contradiction. <laughs> well, no, but that's a, I think that's the thing that's amazing about this is that we all have a completely different relationship to whatever this thing is, you know, because it is yeah, it's not a real thing, you know, it's like whatever we, it's like a religion that way, right? Like it's whatever we do to give it power, makes it powerful, and uh, yeah, like at the same time, like you were saying you know there's neon christ there's ddt there's also these other group of kids that are, are are claiming it or looking at it and experiencing it and i think the fact that we all somehow feel an attachment to it or, i think that's something that's so powerful about this thing is that we can all still debate over what it is and what it isn't and um i'll tell you who is right now and who i really enjoyed watching and it was actually a neon christ uh reunion <coughs> sorry Trank went down the wrong butt. <coughs> no problem. I, I've been smoking a lot of weed, so I might start some, I coughing. Some, need to smoke some weed to fix it. Dude, that. anytime. Well, this this uh, podcast is 100% <laughs> cannabis friendly. Uh, good, good. Uh, so, yeah, there's a band called Upchuck. I don't know if you're familiar with them from Atlanta, but uh, really impressed with the show, their attitude, their music. They, uh, I think that's like new Atlanta uh, punk rock. Um, that I can be proud to say that they're from Atlanta. <coughs> And <clears throat> hell of a show, great music. Well, that's so yeah. everybody look for Upchuck from Atlanta. 
That's awesome. Youngsters. That's awesome because the thing is there's kids that are still coming to this thing. It's still vital, right? Like there's still young kids that are coming to this thing and finding power to it. Cause like, where else can you be a true freak in this world and be celebrated for it? You know, like this is, this is like the one space where you can come in as a young person and just carve your own place in the world. I agree. I agree. Uh, and uh, yeah, there were, that was, uh, that was just like, that was the closest thing I saw to old school Atlanta. <laughs> music it's funny i was so glad they were with neon christ yeah know? yeah no neon christ is a a band that i think outside of like you know atlanta people that experienced it and and record nerds that paid too much for the single like myself it, for the <laughs> longest time it was completely obscure but now it feels like there's a you know certainly the the success of alice in chains and everything uh helps but <laughs> there's a rediscovery that's happened do you think excuse me do you think that alice and chain fans have actually listened to neon christ i think there's probably a you know i I would say there's out of the millions of alice and chains fans maybe a thousand but still there's a thousand more people checking them out like they they had the record reissued right by southern lord put it out right yeah and i don't know that's the other thing i find amazing is that like you know at these atlanta shows there's yourself there's william there's rupaul there's david cross there's all these amazing people that would contribute to to culture on all these different levels and they're all drawn to this thing happening in atlanta at the same time yeah uh rupaul is such a sweetheart david cross i uh i worked a show that someone wanted me to stage manage uh, a while back and uh I was I was there to tell him it was his time to go on, and I wanted to tell him what I did. I said, "Hey, man, Run, Ronnie, Run was my kid's first R-rated movie he ever saw." <laughs> and he awesome. was like, "And I was like, dude, uh, you know that punch that that uh, Blaine from Nashville Pussy threw? That was fucking great, man. I'm glad you threw him in there." He was like, "I was I just figured I was going to leave him alone at that point. <laughs> I would. I I think I just wanted him to be Run, Ronnie, Run." <laughs> and he's he's got i guess a few other sides to himself there you you should have told him who you were because i guarantee you he's a butthole surfers fan not that you well, need I, to do that I but i don't know about that but i don't go around introducing myself that way i just <laughs> talk to people as people i think you should <laughs> jd butthole surfers pinkus everyone yeah <laughs> but yeah. he he was on the show have you ever seen that footage actually of wee wee pole playing i think one of their first shows and the guitar player is looking for someone to light a cigarette and david cross leans in and lights a cigarette for him oh no i didn't see that uh-uh i'll send you That's the link great. to it it's awesome all it, right but it's it's uh yeah like, now explosion from atlanta i don't know are you familiar that? with them no who's now explosion? okay well that was rupaul's band with larry t and all them man uh throw your hands in the air wave like you just don't care because it's nappy it's nappy there's some good songs, man. But yeah, look up, look up uh, Now Explosion. That was a celebrity club scene. And the celebrity club scene was so beyond punk rock. I loved it. They would have a, a kissing box. And uh, I think it was like a dollar for a kiss. And you didn't know what was inside. But you just, you paid a dollar and you got a kiss from something. <laughs> <laughs> But that, that place had it going on. And I remember RuPaul when I was like probably, I guess probably 15 years old playing this band called the Proles in Atlanta. And we played the uh, 
uh, played Celebrity Club, and I remember Rue coming up to me and saying, I just loved y'all so much. I love the energy. Y'all are so good. I like the most supportive person you could ever see after a show, and it was RuPaul. That's yeah, just, awesome. Just coming over to offer just words of encouragement, you know? Yeah. Not like Rue was going to go home and listen to our album or something, but <laughs> just that, that kind of positivity and that kind of, that's what, that's what to me, Atlanta was. Uh, it got ruined a little bit later when, you know, skinheads kind of came into town for a little while. Uh, when that scene, you know, like, you know, from what I remember, Rue got beat up, uh, Zach got beat up and got his, 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 uh, docks ripped off him by some, you know, it's just like that kind of scene kind of rolled in. And that's the last I remember of the Atlanta scene before, uh, before I kind of split. It was kind of falling apart at that point, you know? Yeah. Laura from me. Super- yeah, Laura from Super Chunk and Emerge, when she was on the show, she talked about that because she's from Atlanta too and was going to these same shows with you. Um, and she yeah. was talking about when that skinhead thing came, that's when Neon Christ breaks up and William moves away and it just yeah. kind of ruined yeah. the scene. Yeah, I totally did. Yeah, it was one of those what color are your laces kind of things. You know, uh, if you're wearing docks and you didn't have your laces on, they'd beat you up and take them off of you. I uh, just stupid shit like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was kind of, you know, that's, uh, yeah, I was in my own world back then. I think most of us were in our own world. Uh, but looking back at it now, that's definitely when, the, to me, it ended. You know, I guess everybody in different scenes is like that. Uh, you know, the Metroplex was in one location, uh, Lucky Street, then moved to Marietta Street. And that, that to me was a big, like, turning point in the music scene. And 688 stopping doing music. That's like, I know, that's why Flipper, I can't believe Flipper has not asked me to play bass for him and say, yes. but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm right here, dudes. Come on. I had the roar cassette. I saw y'all playing Atlanta on Blue Jail Acid with everybody else on Blue Jail Acid. And they got up on stage and go, hey, kitties, because we weren't moving. They're like, hey, kitties, don't burn down the house. Okay. But I remember the poster was a broke down uh, van on a white, like just a white photocopied uh flyer and it was just this broke down van said flipper had the date on it and we loved it man i couldn't wait till they got into town so anyways flipper if you're listening to this come on man it's gotta really? happen it's gotta really? happen yeah i Did got you... gray hair just like y'all later on with but old surfers like i imagine they would have been towards the end of their run when what did you guys ever cr- cross paths with them yeah, yeah. We well, uh, I remember backstage at Liberty Lunch. You know, Bruce came backstage, and he did what you were saying. I should have done to uh, to uh, David Cross, uh, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, I, I immediately got to geek all over him about how much I loved his his stuff. But uh, but yeah, that was that was uh, that was the only time really that I can think of I crossed paths with him, other than seeing him when I was probably sixteen at the. Uh, I think it was like 1984 at the 688. I, I'd have to, I, I, I don't know. Have your producer go check that out and get back to us. The researcher's <laughs> working on it right now out back. They're okay, gonna, good, <laughs> it's going to feed into my headphones any second now. <laughs> oh, and David, yeah, I was singing for them now, Flipper, right? I think. Uh, I think he was going to do one more show. Mike Watt was doing some shows uh, and he was singing and playing, but he busted his knee out from what I heard. Get well oh, soon, Mike. Absolutely. And so, uh, so Nathan from We Are the Asteroid, who has also played, has a he was in Gibby's problem band and did some butthole surfers time. 
I met him back when he was in the band Chain Drive and back, way back when, great guy. And he's sitting in with uh, with those guys. Well, he did. I guess that was the 29th in, in, in uh, uh, L.A. And I don't know what they're going to do at this point. But uh, he sat in and Yao sang and instead of Mike being able to do the show because Mike was going to do double duty on that. So... <clears throat> I demand know. a sacrifice i'm just saying i'm right here <laughs> you got the pipes too it's like you're yeah, not coming I'm in just as the bass guy i don't know i don't know i don't know on my phone maybe they lost my number <laughs> <laughs> uh, just what you're talking about earlier about feeding off uh negative energy in the melvins and and when bands do that were there were there times that because like there's so much more stagecraft involved in butthole surfers were, were you able to do that at times like we because i imagine there'd be times where you were met with a a pretty standoffish reaction from some some fans like well, non-fans when I, I joined them when i joined them we really weren't too much i mean it was it was kind of like uh and i joined them in 85 uh end of 85 mm -hmm. and by that point people either kind of knew whether they liked them or didn't like them or had heard about them and you know and maybe that's not my thing or whatever yeah. i would say they probably had more of that shit going on like 82 to 84 uh you know something like that i kind of joined at the beginning of the heyday of the band and uh you know we we had the sound man and we didn't at first but i mean you know when we eventually we had a sound guy and you know like it was a rock show uh but you i will say the one that that cracks me up, and I, I know I mentioned this in other uh, in other interviews, is like we got a little cocky, I guess, and didn't practice for a while. Uh, uh, towards when we were doing, we did like a string of shows like uh, uh, Stone Temple Pilots, Nirvana, uh, Pearl Jam was even on there, and we opened up for Pearl Jam. It was our first show. I don't think we even practiced at all, and uh, we were. Uh, we're the opening band, obviously, for Pearl Jam. And uh, I remember standing up there and, that you know, their crowd is a little different than ours. And so it was like, you know, it was like, uh, you know, the band America. Yes. Like if you look back at like the footage of America shows, because I'm, I'm a big fan of them, but it's a bunch of white guys with like eyes on shirts on and, and uh, you know, khaki shorts and shit, even back then. And this was kind of the Pearl Jam crowd. And so we're up there playing, doing our thing and, and yeah, I don't think it was the best version of us. I'll be the first to admit that. But I remember like looking down and seeing this guy go, "You suck!" And he's like wearing a fucking you know polo shirt and a fucking you know khaki pants and shit, khaki shorts and and a, and a golf hat like Titleist or whatever on there. And, and I'm looking down at him. I wanted to flick him off. And I'm like, you know, you're kind of right. We actually <laughs> do really we do kind of suck tonight. But. uh yeah, we got like a few more shows with these guys, so I'm sure we'll get better. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that was that was kind of like an energy I, I couldn't really feed off of. I just kind of agreed with. I think I thought we were pretty bad too. I mean, even bad for us. Even if you know, if you liked us, you were going to be disappointed. If you didn't like us, you definitely weren't going to like us. <laughs> yeah, well, I can imagine that period would have been so weird because, like you're saying the cult around the bands established by about 85 and, and kind of runs the whole run of the band. But, you know, and you, 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 you're playing to that cult a little bit when you're playing a Lollapalooza type show, but Stone Temple Pilots, Pearl Jam, it, it's, it, they're normals. The fans are normals. Yeah. 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 Totally. Uh, I mean, that was, 
I, I, business-wise, I didn't actually want to go that route. Uh, and that kind of caused a, a little beef with, with me and the, and the powers that be for the band. Uh, I remember uh, my complaint about it. Uh, well, we had done like a, a tour with the Mighty Boss Tones. All right. Now, I, mean, I could go all about this, but uh, I'll try and keep it brief. No, go, but go, go, please. Out. I want to hear all about this. I want this to be two hours on this thing. I would, this is, you're, you're feeding me honey from heaven right now. Uh, all right. Well, I'll go with it for a second then. Uh, so, yeah, so we get uh, this call about doing this tour with Mighty Boss Tones, and we had no idea what we were getting into, to say the least. And so I go backstage and, you know, the first show and we're in, we're in it was cellar door productions down in Florida. I go down and uh, I, I go in the room. There's all like 15 of them or however many people are in the fucking band. And I'm like, hey, man, I'm about to blow this fucking joint, man. Y'all fucking in. And uh, oh, that's so cool, dude. Thanks so much, man. But no, no, we're good, man. Maybe after we play. Which is the uh, I don't smoke weed response from musicians usually. Um, <laughs> so, me and Paul, we go, we, you know, we're trying to be friendly. We go to the sides of the stage and we're both watching. And all of a sudden, like, they're playing music and this dancing thing breaks out. And we're like, whoa, they're dancing. You know, like, we had no idea we were with a band that danced, man. <laughs> and um, it just kept going and kept going. And, and we're just kind of eyeballing each other from across the stage, but oh, what's going on here, man? Uh, and so we just didn't know what we were getting into. But anyways, things got a little ugly afterwards. Uh, not like not like we didn't get into a fight with them, fight with them or anything like that. But I think some people said some words, and I didn't say any words, and I offered them weed. And so in the statement for uh, the tour not going on anymore, uh, they pretty much put out a letter of hate to the butthole surfers, but they unfortunately said I was cool. And I was like, no, I didn't like y'all either. And so it kind of pissed me off just because I offered them weed that they didn't want to smoke. I was the cool one of the band. And so I felt odd because I was like, don't, I'm not like, I'm not y'all's fan. I mean, yeah. So anyways, that happened, and then afterwards, we got offered another tour in that same area with uh, Motley Crue, Typo Negative, Ramones, and us in that same area. And the Motley Crue was not with Vince Neil. It was with a guy, John Karabi. Okay. And that was supposed to be our next tour going through, and that's when I remember I had a discussion with our our manager at the time, I said, I'm really not comfortable with this. I, I don't, and he's like, well, they, they want to pay money. And I'm like, well, of course, you know, I get that. Uh, but you know, we're, we're, we, we've already been a band around for a long time. So to me, it's like, there'll be many more tours, but let's keep some to me integrity and not do this, this through the same area. We just canceled because of the boss tones. And I was asked by him afterwards if, uh, uh, what I would like to see, and I said, well, why don't we do a tour with us, Meat Puppets and Ween? And he said, wow, that would just be another theater tour. This is a stadium tour. And so that's when I realized I was getting a little bit out of like my element for like, uh, I'm 10 years younger than the guys in the band. And, uh, and I was starting to play with uh, some other people that 
uh, it was, yeah, I don't know. I was in a different headspace, definitely, than just wanting to play those kind of shows uh, just to make money. Now I'm all in. Yeah, you know, I'll play. I'll play with Typo Negative now. Wait, no, I can't. Uh, I play with remote. Oh, you can't. Uh, well, you, you can't even play with Motley Crue anymore. Shit, I mean, they're still together, right? Motley Crue. I think. I think Motley I'll Crue. play with the Boss Tones. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and now I'm a whore. I'll, I just, you know, I, I'm, I don't, I don't own this place. I just rent the view, man. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think uh, it must have been low interesting for Paul because is that before or after he did the Sublime record? That was before. So that was his introduction to the world of ska, I guess, or, or that, kind of, <laughs> that kind of sound. <laughs> Wait, now Sublime didn't sound like that, did they? They they, they were have like kind they of have beat music. I thought <laughs> I didn't think they had that. Inch, 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 inch. They have some inch, inch, inch type songs. Okay. They definitely do. They've got that. All right. I don't know. I, I really don't know too much about them. Uh, I've heard, you know, their hit songs and stuff. I'm and, sure for uh, us. I'm, I'm sure for like a ska music aficionado, me saying that Sublime was a ska band is like when people say the Butthole Surfers were a grunge band. Like, it's probably oh, yeah. just like, that's not true. That's, that's not true at all. If you but, ever interview Paul by himself, just say, how do you feel about being the godfather of grunge? And you won't have to say another thing for 45 minutes, probably. <laughs> He'll be so pissed off. Uh, no, he was, he was, when he was on the show, we had a, we had a really fun time. It was a, a, a oh, cool. Oh, good. You didn't tell, you didn't tell him he was the godfather of grunge? Hell, hell no. I'm one of those, I'm a nerd about this shit, as you know, man. Like, to me, if you're not from Seattle in like a very narrow time period and putting out a single on Sub Pop, like, and I think with the Butthole Surfers, that's so reductive to call it a grunge band because your history goes back so, well, the well, history of the band obviously goes back so much further. Um, yeah, I tell people it's more like the uh, music that was uh, designed to piss punk rockers off, you know? Yeah, but like you're saying, like, you know, like the Melvins, you, you know, you can feed off that negative energy. And I think the rejection of punk rock inspiring the butthole surfers, to me, just makes punk rock more powerful because, like, it inspired something great in the rejection of it. Well, just I think it was an expansion, not so much a rejection. I think it was more like, uh, oh, you think you're DIY? Well, check out this DIY, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Our DIY is better than your DIY. <laughs> well, and, it, and it's fascinating now because I think it's been assumed back into punk in a way that it's an influence on younger bands or new bands. Like, it's part of the punk rock lexicon. Like, it had to expand the parameters of punk rock for punk rock to eventually catch up to where the butthole surfers were. And that no one's ever going to catch up to where the butthole surfers were. I mean, but at least I don't know if that's even. I don't even know if there's even a path to catch up because there was that was such a anything goes band. I mean, we would rent studio time uh, if we didn't use our own studio without having a song in mind to go to record. And don't want to get there, just you know, do it. That's how Human Cannonball happened. And, and in fact, on that same one, we decided to do a greatest butthole surfers greatest hits song uh, for the B side of a single. And uh, that was all of our songs put together and played at the same time. So we had to find the longest one to start out first and then uh, wait until so they all ended together, time them all out to where they all started, but they all end at the same time. So uh, but that was back at that time. I'm sure the song will be a lot heavier now with the songs that they put on after I left. 
Would you be? Would you guys have been sober doing this kind of stuff, or is this on on stuff? What do you mean sober? Like California sober? <laughs> yeah, well, like yeah, but like I mean, would you be going in like, okay, I can't, I can't be on psychedelics today because we're going to be trying to do the math to figure out how all our songs can fit on one side of a seven inch? Like that doesn't seem like a, a something that would be conducive with smoking a shit ton of weed. Well, actually, you might be fine with weed, but, but like yeah, or doing we, psychedelics. We kind of have some crazy superpowers that way. I will tell you, uh, and they still, uh, I believe, carry with me to this day. Uh, is I could kick your ass in tennis right now, and I just smoked a joint, did a little bit of mushrooms, and I've already had my you know, morning cocktail. But uh, but yeah, I still kick your ass in tennis right now. You ready? Yeah, yeah I'm Let's ready. Go. No, I'm, I'm not All ready right. for tennis at any point. Like, <laughs> believe me, I've been smoking enough weed too. That uh, <laughs> but no, tennis. I'm not ready for tennis uh, and ever. Uh, but when you're ready for tennis, let me know, man. Well, at least some you, more opponents. At least you haven't fallen in with the golf disease of the Melvins. I can't do the golf thing. I'm sorry. My arms hurts. My wife's birthday it was just the other night when we, uh, you know, that LSD comes in a spray bottle now. But anyways, uh, but we went to uh, we went to eat some oysters. Then we went to an arcade where it's the retrocade, and I kicked uh, an 11 year old's ass at air hockey. My arm still hurts, man. But yeah, I whipped his ass, man. I'm very competitive. I will, yeah. I will say that we are in kind of like, I think a new golden age for, you know, non, non face drugs for non, you know, like obviously hard drugs now with fentanyl, it's a different thing, but I'm talking like acid mushrooms, cannabis stuff. I think we're in a new golden age for it because like you're I saying, too. you know, DMT. Yeah, and- I just played, I just played a, a little festival, Cosmic Vibration Festival down in Florida. And, and, uh, and, and the, the lady Jenny put it on. Uh, she found me while she was on acid. I was like, how did you find my music? How come I'm here? You know, but, but I noticed that most of the bands that were playing that they brought in, you know, I'm of a older school where rock and roll and drinking kind of came hand in hand. Uh, but nowadays drinking is not, not very cool at all, which is great. Mm. Uh, that means hopefully the price will go down for me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, uh, I, I, I'm going to leave a, uh, a, a friend of mine who plays music and, uh, told me one time, he goes, uh, he goes, I will leave out the name. He goes, man, that's just so cool. You like mushrooms and things that like kind of broaden your, your world and your your brain up and help you figure things out is like i'm just so shallow if i want to do drugs i want to do cocaine and uh, i i i think that's an old school mentality too you know uh mm-hmm. i don't i don't i don't i don't flow with the nose drugs uh anymore but i've, I've done some time there i'm like yeah you know, i was an opportunivore for many years but you just put it in front of me and i do it but now i'm much more selective and uh basically because of my my uh i got i got back into mushrooms after doing my ayahuasca and uh and that's like the way to bring it back and uh to kind of get into that mode but yeah it gives you some uncomfortable vibes i i imagine that you know cocaine does the same thing to people too in a different way i mean if you hang out with people on cocaine they're way more uncomfortable than i would be say if i do my, my mushrooms and i'm hanging out with people because you know they're, they're like rolling their tongues around and grinding their teeth, mm-hmm. and, you know, 
the the dick is coming out their butthole. You know, <laughs> I'd I'd much rather be around. Man, that's a weird image. But I, I'd much I'd much rather be <laughs> <laughs> around a bunch of people that have. Uh, you know, uh, that are on mushrooms or, or even acid. Like I know be, not being on psychedelics, being around people with psychedelics can sometimes be a bit too much, but not being on cocaine, being around people on co- cocaine is way fucking worse. Yeah. And I've been that guy. I've been the guy on cocaine around people, not on cocaine. And, and I look back at that. And that, was, that was, that was pretty, pretty ridiculous. Uh, you know, just glad I'm past that point. Uh, there was a time, like I would say, I, I know, you know, like, I'm not going to get into a bunch of stuff with it, but there's a point in life where you don't understand why people do it. And then you go out, like if you're a musician and you play at one, one o'clock in the morning and the club shuts down at two and you've been drinking all night. You think you need some of that kind of shit. I understand where that mentality comes from. Uh, but you know, for me, I just realized I have way, way too much energy and uh, uh, enough to where even smoking sativa is too much for me. Uh, I like, you know, smoking indica, something to slow this brain down. If you're self-employed and trying to make, you know, ends meet by yourself, uh, you're always working. You know, I was talking to someone that owned a bar I just played at. And he said, when he wakes up, he's got an anxiety like, oh, my God, I got to do something right now. What if I, I, I'm, I'm behind already? And, you know, I know that feeling as a, you know, when you don't have somebody covering, you know, and, and making your schedule for you. Uh, you know, I, I have great help and you know, booking and stuff like that. Thanks, Joey. Atomic music. Hey, man. Uh, but he, he takes care of me and helps me make a living for sure. Uh, but as my buddy Danny Barnes said, uh, which is my banjo sensei and I guess a, a sensei in general. But, you know, if you, you don't need a manager, if, uh, if, if you have enough time to write a song yourself or play. Uh, if, you, if it turns out you can't even write music anymore because you're so busy with people calling you up and having to work out deals and all this stuff, then yeah, you need a manager. If not, you're probably just lazy. Mm. You know, uh, you you make shit happen. You know, I've got great people that help me with shirts and, and merchandise and all that stuff. All I need to do is a phone call and an email and a, you know a PayPal and a, and it's done. It's not like this stuff's you know rocket science or anything. Some people just get uh a little lazy i think you know yeah uh you know with, with their with their business and and once people and uh, you know sometimes people have good luck with management sometimes people don't and once management figures out that somebody's already generating money themselves they go into autopilot so they're not really going to try for you as much as they do at the beginning of it once they get things going they're working on the next person that they can try and do that with so that's a, that's a a little piece of advice that I would give out to to any anybody that's that's trying to do business is don't try and don't think that management is the key to your your success. It's really all within yourself. You got to make shit happen. Don't be a dick, and then shit will happen. <laughs> well, and I think and I think it's an industry that's designed to burn you out. You know, and not and it isn't by design. I think it's more just how it's worked out. But like the fact that it's alcohol that underwrites this whole thing and you know what's like you're saying what's the pathway to bad decisions it's like a lot of times it's alcohol you know yep. it, and and it feels like you can always get a drink in a band like beer is essentially free once you start playing music that's not just free it's how you're getting paid so you know like if you show up and you know you get like your your food and your you know your buyout buy some food whatever you drink 
and you're not really making that much, you know, uh, to get by, you know, people don't really understand the life of, of, you know, many traveling musicians. Then, you know, uh, one of the things, there's also the hurry up and wait mm. thing. You show up and then you hurry up, get there, make sure you check in and then you can't do anything until it's your time. And so there's a lot of time to kill. Hence weed works really well with that. If weed works for you, but, uh, but yeah, drinking can, you know, can you know is definitely like that's part of their budget that they put in there uh you know people will drink because of that i know a lot of people nowadays like you said alcohol is not much of the equation anymore and i think that's great for you know for everybody definitely can be more productive that way uh and definitely healthier on the body uh i'm still an opportunity when it comes to that i guess but uh, I like to I like to have uh, I like to uh, to have a good time sometimes. And yeah, if I if I all of a sudden made some decision where I couldn't drink good moonshine, that would that would just suck. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I think you know everyone's got their own ways of medicating in life. Like it's all we're all medicating in some way, like self medicating. You just got to find the medication system that works for you that doesn't harm you too badly and allows you to kind of maintain the life on the road. And I think. It's funny because like up here in Canada right now, obviously, yeah, we've legalized no, Canada. chicken scratch for the chickens down below. That's the <laughs> that's the crack right there. Um, we got a uh, you know in Canada we've legalized cannabis now. So like, to me, the next step is having venues where you can consume cannabis, and obviously they're not going to let well not obviously, but they're not going to let alcohol and cannabis be served in the same place. But most of the bands right. I know would choose a cannabis venue over a booze venue any day of the week. I went to a, uh, I was on a Melvin's tour and we went to one of those dab bars. Yeah. They all got shut down. Those were illegal. I remember, remember we were hanging out after you guys went to the dab bar. Oh, so you were there that one. Yeah. <laughs> so that was me and me and Dave current and they, they set us up to fail when we went there. They didn't know I had superpowers, but still when I got back to the brightly lit stage to set up my gear. Oh my God, man. I went and stared at my cables, which I, I just plugged them in many times, but I was like, I wasn't going to let anybody know, but I had no idea where any of those cables were supposed to go into at all. I, I was like, I was just like, just, just move them around a bit. All right. There you go. You look like you're doing something now. <laughs> yeah. There, no matter how much experience you have as a cannabis user, the first dab will always bring you back to the first time you ever smoked weed. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's, I just, I don't really need to get that high. Uh, it's like the whole thing with edibles is, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's like cooking a potato and maybe I don't want to eat that potato in four hours, but you know, if I want some French fries right now, I can smoke a joint. And if I want French fries in four hours, I'll smoke another joint. And that, <laughs> That to me is kind of more the way I like to uh, to medicate myself. I guess it's the same thing with drinking. I don't like to do shots. Uh, I like to just sip on stuff, you know. And so I think that's where a lot of people uh, there's that part of your brain that that uh, when you drink that after the second, you know, it goes it reaches that other lobe of your brain. From what I've heard, uh, that's when you could be crawling on the ground uh, trying to get another drink because your body's telling you you need one and uh, uh, I think that's where that's where uh, folks get in trouble with a lot of drugs. It's kind of I have a buddy that that 
when I gave him mushrooms, he liked it so much. He was like, give me more. I'm like, it doesn't really work like that. You just enjoy what you're doing right now. Uh, if I give you more, it's not going to make it better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's gonna, uh, many people have made that mistake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think, yeah, so definitely like self-medication is a thing. Uh, definitely, I think the, the pharmaceutical companies have screwed us up. The, uh, the, uh, definitely the alcohol companies have screwed us up. I'm, I've been victim to that for sure. Uh, whoever's making fentanyl, they're fucking making a killing right now. Yeah. But uh, they get a lot of advertising. <laughs> yeah, God, yeah, no, like, uh, and that, and that's the thing that I find, uh, you know, the the scariest thing about it is like, now with these super opioids, people are chasing that high, that have experienced that high, and it's and from the sounds of it, it's just a little too much, like the tiniest amount too much, and that's it for even the most experienced kind of opioid user. But there's a there's a book uh, I believe I believe his name was Danny Goldberg and he was friends with the Doors and Led Zeppelin and all them back then uh, in the music industry and uh, I might have his name wrong but I think that was it but he would tell he told the story about Jimmy Page uh, calling up the uh, hospital saying there was a heroin OD and waiting for the uh, while he was staying with him. And then he would drive up his driveway when he'd see the ambulance drive up his driveway is when he would shoot himself uh, a lethal shot of heroin, knowing that they were already prepared to try and revive somebody. So, yeah, everybody's always going to push the next. Uh, well, not everybody. A lot of folks will push that limit. To see uh, what, where they can take it to next. Luckily, the time I died, I was on ayahuasca and not on fentanyl. <laughs> yeah, and and ego death is a, a much more pleasant one to come back from, and and, and yeah, you're able to come back. Beyond, from. This was beyond ego death. I thought I was really dead, but yeah, the ego death thing is definitely uh, is definitely a real deal. Yeah, uh, but but yeah, I, I actually thought I was well. DMT is released when you when you're born and when you die. And that's the only time your body doesn't doesn't uh, kill it as soon as it's in the system. So it's very easy to understand how you could have a death experience on ayahuasca because you know, you're, you have the uh, inhibitors uh, that are letting the DMT float around. So your body might interpret that as you're dying anyways, uh, because, you know, obviously you look at me and I've, I've had a very slight case of progeria since I've been a kid. I just uh, aged a little quicker than everybody else. But, uh, but yeah, as far as it comes to death, that's, that was, uh, uh yeah. Uh, I think uh, that's a, a good thing for everyone to experience before they actually do it. Like you're saying with these psychedelic drugs, like they are, they more open your mind to experiences and, and things like that. But was there ever a point where in the butthole surfers that, or in any band that you played in where, where that psychedelic, that pursuit of psychedelic freeness, creativity, whatever went too far? especially in a live setting? <laughs> uh, not too bad, no. I don't know. We, you know we, there was, we would just do it. I mean, everybody was like, wasn't that weird taking acid all that much and traveling around and doing it? It's like, you know what's weird? It's not taking acid and traveling around a lot. <laughs> yeah. But you know, at least at least you had like this one thing that you're like, oh, yeah, I'm tripping, man. That's why this is fucking bizarre. Uh, you know, if you're not tripping, then it's just bizarre. You know, but, uh, but yeah, we, I mean, yeah, there were times like I couldn't tune my fucking bass or whatever, you know. I mean, it just yeah, there's there's been awkwardness, you know, but uh 
but in general, I'd say, no, it was never an issue to us. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like I, I did my, my record, Keep on the Grass, and everybody gave me weed when I played a show. And I did a record called Fungus Shui, and everybody gives me mushrooms at the show. So I know not to uh, call my next album like Methland or Meth Mountain or something like that, because then I'll end up with a shitload of meth on my tour. But uh, you call it gold coin, gold coin, uh, grotto <laughs> quarters aren't cool. Tour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give me all your quarters. Yeah. Uh, no, it's, it was, it was something that you know, people knew, you know, that that, that was kind of something that we liked and, and we would do that to keep awake. The cocaine didn't come into our world until later. And that was a bummer. Uh, when uh, we had a rule about cocaine on the road and that was that. Uh, we'd, we'd have to do it all that night. It was usually Florida and Miami to be precise. And we'd be like, I bet the promoter, we could trade them, you know, 200 bucks for eight ball or whatever. And so, you know, we would, we would, you know, whatever we would get, we would do it all that night. The rule was there was not allowed to be any in the morning when we woke up. And, uh, and so that, that was kind of our rule of thumb when we would do it, which was like, twice a year maybe or something like that and uh but then you know uh you know things change and uh people's preferences changes and like i say like you know when when you're younger uh you know and, and you've got all this energy you wonder why people need to do all cocaine then you get older and you think well maybe that'll help me stay up and feel younger for 40 minutes or whatever which is all bullshit uh especially now with the quality of the stuff that, that's around uh, i can't imagine you know, or taking the risk of, you know, having fentanyl in your shit. I mean, you know, that's, that sounds like a nightmare. Uh, we actually had, uh, ambulance drivers and, uh, was ambulance drivers and who else was it? That was up here. They came up to Asheville, the party, a fire department. They came up to party. It was like 12 of them and they scored cocaine. Cause you know, you get piss tested only weed stays in your body that long. So they figured they could do cocaine by the time they got piss tested, it would be gone. Well, it was all of them got the fentanyl and, uh, it was like two different hotel rooms and they had to, you know, the cops and ambulances had to show up for, uh, to try and, you know, save them. Some of them lived, I think, but most of them, uh, died, but yeah, it's a totally different world to try and party in. You know, the worst we had before was like getting licorice for hash or some kind of shit like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oregano for weed or something. Yeah, yeah, some kind of shit like that, man. Well, it's yeah, like it really. As much as it's the golden age for these like psychedelics and and cannabis, like I don't know, I don't know, natural drugs or or white magic drugs, I guess, or I don't know what you call them, but just yeah, <laughs> something. But the as it's it's like a real horrible time for cocaine. Yeah, there's tons of stories. There's a a, a lawyer couple up here that died partying like weekend warrior style up here there's a bunch of comedians that all died because of fentanyl in their coke and it it just yeah. feels like yeah. i couldn't imagine being a young band in that world now yeah people party with that what's that norcam or whatever that shit is yeah. like they keep yeah. that around people that party they're like literally keep that shit around just in case mm -hmm. that's I can't imagine that. That's we 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 have it in our my car. My wife has it in the car because a, another parent at my kid's school saw someone ODing on the street and just had to have just happened to have some and and save someone's life that was ODing in wow. front of them, like just a stranger. So we actually have what kit in my car now. 
Well, that's crazy. I, I, I bought a uh, motorcycle helmet from my bandmate in hockey, and he got into a, uh, a slow motion bike wreck in Austin with it and cracked the helmet. And I was like, wow, that might have saved his life. So now I just want to buy everybody a helmet, whether they ride a bike or not. Yeah, well, definitely. It definitely <laughs> did, right? Like if it's cracking the helmet, it's definitely cracking your head. Yeah, yeah. I fucked his foot up pretty good. But, uh, but yeah, his, his head uh, cracked the helmet, though. And, but yeah, that's a, you know, if you could buy your friends all a helmet, wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. Yeah. Like just, I, I don't know. I think a life uh, helmet. <laughs> yeah. A, a lot. We, I think in the band, like, and this goes to mushrooms because I think mushrooms, I started using mushrooms a lot more recently to help me kind of cope with it. But I, I sadly like lost a bunch of friends back to back uh really right. recently. And you just want to, you just want to wrap your friends in bubble wrap, you know, like, yeah, if it's a helmet or whatever you can do yeah. to protect your people you love. Yeah, yeah. There's only so much you can do, man. Yeah, but especially when we start getting up to this age, you know, things. Uh, uh, and if you're in this kind of profession, because most people that do this kind of profession are not the stablest people. Mm. So I had to explain that to my son uh, a long time ago. I was like, yeah, you know, I was like, yeah, your mom's friends, you know, who are not musicians, don't don't pass away like your dad's friends. But these people are all, you know, feel unaccepted. Uh, a lot of them, I mean, uh, can feel unaccepted, can feel like they live on the edge. They self-medicate a little bit harder than other people. So in this world, you're going to you're gonna see more people passing than you will in, say, a lot of other worlds. Uh, not that that doesn't happen in other worlds, but, um, but that's definitely, uh, you know, something you know, artistic people. Uh, you know, you, if you go to Europe, they, they look at people that do art in a different way than, than people in the States do. And that's just, you know, bred into our culture. Um, you know, the uh, uh, our art is, uh, as my son said one time a long time ago, is like art is the one thing that we do to not, that that, that doesn't help us to uh, survive. Uh, you know, you learn how to fish, you can catch a fish to eat, you know, learn how to make some, you know, drinks or whatever, food preparing and all that. But we do art that doesn't really help us to live it's not gonna you know put you know necessarily put you know, a roof over your head or put food on your table it's something we do because most of the time we have to uh it's just something that's inside of us and that's the way we express ourselves but uh but yes yeah, so definitely definitely uh uh people that choose that route are definitely going to be a little bit more on edge yeah and i think you know just to bring it back i guess a little more to the music side of things too like the people that choose it in in punk too like the people that choose to not fit into society even more based on just the kind of music they listen to or the way they want to dress i think tend to also be people that are you know i say this from personal experience and and, and a personal place but are, are people that struggle with fitting in in the normal world yeah yeah exactly and that's what gets back to why people like butthole surfers that you were saying earlier and that I was mentioning that people come up to me and say, uh, it's the first time I didn't feel like I was, uh, so weird. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I think there's a, uh, there's a comfort in finding <laughs> a fellow weirdos. Right. Yeah. Hey, can we take a pause for a sec? Hey no. there. Oh uh, yeah. Oh, look at that baby. <laughs> oh, hey, bud, bud. Bud. Say hi, bud. Hello. Hello. 
Aww. Yeah, life's tough, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Have more terriers. Oh, it's so cute. <laughs> um, uh, fuck, where were we? Where were we? Uh, 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 last thing I said oh, was, I got to pee. Can we hold off? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, uh, you know, not to shift gears, but I guess, it's, you know, we don't have to wallow in the, the sadness, uh, as much, but, uh, I wanted to kind of find out about that sort of Austin scene that you kind of come back into at a certain point. Like, were you, I guess, were you on the road consistently with Buttle Surfers or did you kind of make Austin a secondary home base as well? Uh, we kind of lived on the road for the first three years. Um, I would say we were probably, uh, mm-hmm. I got a little beef friend over here. We were, uh, we slept on like, I mean, I've told the story a bunch, I guess, but, uh, but when I joined them, they were like, you know, just want to let you know, we sleep on a lot of people's floors, we probably sleep on floors about every night. And I'm like, you promised me we're going to sleep on a floor every night. So I left home and I was happy that, you know, that I didn't have to figure out where I was going to be sleeping. But uh, we traveled around. We'd stay at people's warehouses or whatever. And and uh, after about a week, they'd be like, so y'all got, what's your next show? We're like, yeah, we're working on it. And, and guess what? They'd start working on it, too. And before you knew it, we'd have a show somewhere else and sleeping on someone else's floor. Uh, but we did that for a bunch, you know, traveling around. And, uh, and we'd take vacations together. We'd go to, like, Estes Park in the Rocky Mountains or key largo florida because we had some time off and uh you know a lot lot of a lot of cool shit because we didn't have a place to live uh but uh we did start living in in austin we still played a lot of shows and we still lived together and we didn't like just split up money and then go our separate ways it was uh very much a communal living uh thing so we're always inspired to go out and keep doing work uh then it got to where we weren't all living together and and things uh, uh, things slowed down for us, you know, hence like some of those bigger tours that I was talking about uh, back after like the 90s. I'd say probably like 89 was when we were finishing up doing a lot of just tour after tour after tour uh, and staying on the road. And but uh, but yeah, that was that was I mean, that was the only way really to advertise for yourself was to play uh shows and be in the paper and have reviews and have recommendations and and the papers uh because we didn't have big pockets behind us and that was you know getting towards the end of the fanzine world so Mm -hmm. you you kind of have to be out there if you want to be in the business i think that's you know kind of different now you got social media people don't have to be necessarily out playing they just have to show that they're playing uh, you know, they can play in their in their backyard as long as you show it all the time. People think you play all the time. But uh, but yeah, back in the day, I think that was kind of how, you know, those part of your part of what you were paying for was recognition and 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 people know you were a working band. So you kind of had to be out there because that uh, that Austin garage rock scene that kind of I guess it's like the late 80s or into the 90s. Um, early 90s maybe i don't know like when it really kicks off but the you know that honky i always lump honky in with that kind of stuff and daddy oh, longhead yeah. too yeah but there was such a great scene there too like it felt like it was a really vibrant time for music locally. it was it was really healthy out there i think at that time uh everybody kind of was mindful of what everybody else was doing at their own clubs and so they would uh 
you know, uh, there was a lot more communication between the people that were doing music uh, and like the clubs and the bands and uh, a lot more cooperation about making it less competitive, more supportive, maybe. That's mm. kind of what I'm trying to say. Uh, and nowadays in, say, Austin, everything's owned by very few people. Uh, there's, uh, you have Steve Wertheimer owns all of South Austin. You have Bob Woody, that's 6th Street. You have uh, C3 that's buying up everything. Uh, yeah, this guy Randall, he had like stuff that was like different theme bars. Like one, one was a leather jacket, you know, rock bar. And then right by it is the Tiki bar he owns because it's easier to restock that way. Uh, but it lost a lot of the individuality of actual, you know, clubs being authentic about what they are. Um, you know, people took a lot more pride in, uh, I think the individualism of the clubs back in the day. Now it's just more of a logistics thing about, uh, how you know I can stock up a lot easier that way, and uh, and it's a lot more cutthroat probably as far as how the business goes. But that's probably because there's a lot more money in it too. So, but um, but yeah, I think Austin's become corporate in a lot of in a lot of ways back then. Uh, and when I moved there, you know, to set the record clear on Austin being cool or not, I was told, and like the first time I went there in '86 or whatever that. Uh, it used to be cool. And I'm like, it's pretty cool. And I'm like, no, no, it used to be cool. I'm like, no, no, I mean, it's, it's pretty cool. I just came from Atlanta. This is really cool. I like it. No, you should have been here before, man. Yeah. So there was always that going on. So I never thought I saw the cool Austin, but I definitely saw the really, really uncool Austin to me towards the end of it uh, from, from me. But that's just me being the same guy I probably met when I first moved there. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of people that probably love live, work and play uh, lifestyles and and uh, people that love extreme traffic and people that just love the fact that buildings are being put up taller and taller downtown with nowhere to drive or park or or any of that stuff. But people still love it. They, they love living on the face of the sun, too, which mm-hmm. I'm really glad that uh, that. Uh, I moved to a place that has four seasons, but Austin is a, it, it used to be a Mecca. It used to be called the live music capital of the world. Then it went to live music capital of the world. If you were under 80 DB while the doors were open and, um, and now it's not anything like that as far as I can tell, but I'm about to play out there again at one of the coolest old places, uh, old school places that's out there now. That's actually a new place called the Sagebrush. And it's kind of by itself. It's got two stages. Uh, we're having like a old school Austin family reunion show for us on uh, Black Friday in Austin. And that'll be Honky's first show in, uh, since March 15th to 2020. And uh, it was going to have some great bands and it's going to have wrestling. It's going to have a, a uh, little sales area outside for local artists and uh it's just gonna be really nice like that's kind of what i remember of austin the cool the, the part i thought was cool anyways uh and, and having that kind of reunion together to uh target together and see what each other been up to never been into uh to a high school reunion i've never been to one but uh but yeah i'll go check out some old austin friends that should be fun that's awesome because yeah like i feel like you're saying that and this has happened in every city. I think there's been a loss of the individual character 
of cities that's happened yeah. and it's been hyper accelerated the last few years. Um, yeah, I think, I, I think I put, I heard somebody put it like, uh, uh, you know, uh, how can Republicans and Democrats work together and it's instead change it? Like, well, let's, let's look at say, and you can use Austin as a, and as example, even though it wasn't the example, but that there's a bunch of musicians that realize there's a place that's kind of cheap to live at and they can live there. And then, uh, they start running out of housing because so many musicians are coming in. And so then the people with the money start going, you know, we can make some money here if we can build some spots for these musicians who are building the scene to live in. And they're not very artistic, but they can fit that need of, of uh putting you know housing in until it becomes to a point where nobody can afford to have the housing anymore and then people keep moving in the artistic uh folks move out and they start their shit somewhere else and the whole cycle begins again and that's kind of you know once people see money in something they're gonna want to invest in it and make money in it unfortunately musicians are the ones that don't care about that the most uh, in my experience and, uh, usually get the, the, the raw end of the deal, uh, uh, as far as that goes, but that's just the nature of the beast. I mean, if, if all my friends were interested in, uh, developments for musicians to live in, I probably wouldn't be hanging out with them. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's just, but, but they need each other hand in hand. It's just, there's gotta be a good balance between it to make a, a town or a scene, you know, be able to, to last. Yeah, absolutely. Because then the whole reason these people wanted to move to these neighborhoods is gone. Um, right. And, and it's just like, it's just full of like these sort of fast build condo buildings and no character. And it, it just, it's, yeah. it's funny because like, especially with Austin, it feels like, you know, well, I, I don't know, you live there, but South by Southwest, Austin becoming this music city ultimately accelerated this process for that city because everyone wanted to move there. It was cool to be there. Well, and it, it's such a great place my, to be. My theory on that is if they would have just moved South by Southwest to August, there would be nobody moving into uh, <laughs> Austin at all. But they picked the two weeks that we usually have good weather to, to do this festival. And that's what screwed the whole city is that everybody was like oh my god i love it here it's uh, it's like if you show up to uh to uh portland and it's 76 degrees and sunny all of a sudden that day and you're like wow i could live here and you know it's it's kind of the same thing with austin with south by everybody thinks that it's it's going to be that temperature and that kind of music scene all year round and uh you know it's a, it's a weird town for music scenes in general uh, because it's very like people that go to the east side of town don't necessarily go to the south side of town, and south siders don't usually go up to Red River, and you know, there's a there's it's a very segmented scene uh, as far as it goes. But during South by, everybody goes everywhere, and the weather, uh, for the most part, I, I would love to see a uh, maybe your producer can look into this uh, to see what the weather was like for the past uh, thirty uh, South by Southwest and see how, how people were fooled into thinking that they wouldn't be living on the face of the sun for eight <laughs> months out of the year. I think someone put it best, and they said that Austin has four seasons. It's hot, hotter, hottest, and Christmas. We, we played with Guar outside one year, and it was the coldest fucking show I've ever played in my life. In like, Austin? 
Austin. And that was, you know, obviously Dave walking around in a G string. I just it was like everyone's dying, freezing to death because it is, I think it might be one of the coldest days on record for, for March in Austin because it wow. was, oh my gosh. Like, uh, yeah, ice cold, ice cold. That Dude, I was talking about deceiving that the weather is very deceiving. <laughs> yeah, South exactly. by Southwest. You better believe I was wearing every free piece of clothing I received. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> um, this might be like a kind of a sore subject, and if it is, I forgive me. But how did it end with yourself in man's ruin? Because it seems like that label was riding such a high, and then just everything kind of fell apart a little bit. Oh yeah, no, I, I really don't know why. Uh, I think he just decided not to do that anymore. Uh, I, I loved everything Man's Room put out, and I love I the band owned the music. He just owned the artwork, and you know, and then it was put out by Man's Room. So that the combination of the two was uh, was his. It was a very fair deal for everybody. Uh, he got Kozik artwork, uh, good distribution, good press. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure why uh, he decided. I mean, probably because you know I've not had a label and still kind of have one. It's it's not usually a, a, a money-winning situation, so maybe to uh, to concentrate your efforts elsewhere might have been in his better interest. But uh, but there was no bad blood between any bands whatsoever that I know of. Uh, I had a great experience with it, and in fact, uh, somebody wants to put out that uh, ten inch again. Uh, uh, coming up with I think splitting it with Altamont's one. And so we're, we'll look into that. And I, I haven't talked to Kozik to see the legalistics of that. But uh, as far as I know, as long as the artwork is not the same, the uh, songs are still uh, uh, belong to us. It's uh, that run of 10 inches. It's amazing. Like I would even put that against the sub pop singles in terms of like consistency of stuff that was on some of those 10 inches, like, well, like Queens of the Stone Age and like all these bands that went on to become huge rock bands yeah. at a certain point yeah. too but there's some unbelievable things on there so what's the difference between the uh between sub pop and the titanic i don't know what's the difference between sub pop and the titanic a titanic had a good band <laughs> well on those singles there's got to be a band you like i mean the beach boys <laughs> did one of those singles right <laughs> uh, it's a joke man okay get over it jesus <laughs> okay you never know there's a there's a, a real religious uh adherence to what's not this liking. what's that that's danzig mowing the lawn <laughs> it's a joke it's a joke <laughs> did butthole surfers, so sensitive did butthole surfers ever play with fugazi yeah uh i have a uh yeah we didn't play with them but we uh we hung out with them uh i was just telling the story the other day of uh, Ian, uh, they were at our house and I was sitting, uh, it was in Driftwood and I was sitting in the, uh, we kind of lived in a valley and, and I was walking around the property and it's just me and him and sat up on top of this hill. We we're looking down. I, I lit up a joint and smoking a joint. We we're talking. He goes, how much money do you think you all spend on weed every year? And I was like, Hmm, I don't know. I started doing some math. I'm pretty good at that. And, uh, I don't know, maybe 10000 a year. He goes, oh, shit, you could have a swimming pool back here for that. And I said, oh, no, there's a swimming hole right across the street. 
<laughs> we can have both. Yeah. <laughs> but he's a sweetheart, man. I don't, I don't, I've heard lots of weird shit about this and that and the other, but uh, all those guys are extremely, extremely kind and uh, very nice to us, man. It's kind of interesting to look at them in the butthole surfers as being these two, you know, uh, diametrically opposed in a lot of ways, but in a lot of ways, weirdly similar in the approach to being free with this music and taking it to wherever the music takes you. Yeah. And again, that that gets into like someone telling you how, you know, I mean, someone was was joking about, again, I'll leave names out about uh, fat records telling, uh, uh some punk rock band about how to make their album more punk rock and there's nothing less punk rock than somebody telling a punk rock band how to make their band punk rock <laughs> so you know i don't know it, to me there's like there's all different kinds out there and and some people are like you can't stand up you can't do this you can't do that if you're gonna be at my show you gotta do this when well, i can't charge more than that it doesn't matter it's, it's our own fucking trip man you know I think uh, I think it's 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 nice that we have variety. You know, we don't we don't live in China. We don't, <laughs> yeah, we can we can express ourselves however we want to. And we and I toured China, and they had a, like a, a awesome range of punk there too. So punk oh, is good. It's going to thrive and survive and, and become its thing everywhere. Well, I take it back about China then. Yeah, there's definitely North Korea. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> say the punk rock man's in North Korea. Let me go there then. I yeah you're right you stumped me there that's like the one place I think you could go that I have nothing there's actually there's a couple countries but that's definitely one of them uh this has been an absolute thrill and I could punish you all day but I I think you know you've got a lot to do uh, I think your your new record's amazing your solo stuff is incredible like what you're doing Thank now you so much and I think like that's that's one of the great things about you know your career is that you've done all these different sorts of things within this realm of music, whatever this realm of music, whatever you want to classify it as. Yeah. I'm just lucky that uh, people keep listening to me and give me a chance when I put stuff out. Uh, you know, this has been doing the solo stuff has been uh, one of the most uh, satisfying, freeing things that, that I've done. And I recommend it to anybody um, to be able to, uh, to take your songs and bring them into a, a more intimate way uh, to, to, to tell your stories and to tell your songs and to come up with ways to come up with the sounds that you want to hear that you can't necessarily, uh, a lot of times we compromise when we play with other people and uh, you know, you let them add this and you let them add that to it. And by the the end of it, it sounds great, but it's not exactly the 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 way you heard it in your head. So being able to do solo stuff and being able to use loops and do stuff the way that I that I've been able to do it and orchestrate things has been really freeing and opened up a lot of doors to other stuff. I'm doing a I already recorded. A, I want to say it's a banjo ambient album, but there's actually songs on it as well with a, a friend of mine, Mike Savino, who lives down the hill that way, uh, about two miles. And he's uh, an amazing, amazing player. Uh, his goes by Tall Tall Trees. And me and him have just finished a, uh, before I did this last tour, um, a full length album that will be out on Shimmy Disc. And uh, it's called. Uh, uh, Oh, what is it called? 
It's gonna be on shimmy disc. That's just the. They just have to look up your name on the streaming service, and it'll be like the new yeah, release. Yeah, yeah, just keep checking out. back, right? I know, I know. I felt so bad for for not remembering what we decided to call it, but it's gonna be coming out uh, coming up mid midsummer, and a bunch more solo stuff will be coming out. And uh, Honky is gonna be doing a show coming up, which I'm looking forward to, and uh, lots of shows, and uh, hopefully a January tour that's taking shape. But, uh, but yeah, just trying to keep busy out here. And thanks for listening to the uh, solo stuff and bringing that up. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it'll be interesting to play in a band again coming up here for this honky show at the in Austin uh, Black Black Friday, uh, and it should be a blast. But yeah, people are gonna have to put up with me, like being the first time I actually play in a band for a while. It's interesting, to, you know, not to dive back into it but I, I just wanted to bring this up earlier you know when paul was on he very much echoed your sentiments about how what you guys did in the butthole surfers is never going to happen again because it was perfect the way it, like for its time it was it was what it was and you can't recreate that and i know it's just interesting because there's so many people that come on this show and there's there's a few that are that seemingly content with the legacy they left behind with a band. Like most people feel like there's unfinished business, it seems. Yeah, no, I think I think our business was kind of finished. Uh, I, I actually, you know, both me and Paul wrote music for new butthole surfer stuff that didn't work out. Uh, and mine's, mine's yet to come out yet. And I'm really happy with what, I, what I've gotten done. And Paul actually plays on some of it. And that will come out eventually. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, honestly, I'm, a little disappointed that what was going to be a record turned into be a coffee table book and uh uh another book and uh and then uh, uh i guess uh, there's a documentary going on uh, but you know the to me there's still music to be made and uh my stuff paul put his out as a solo project mine's going to come out as a solo project too and uh i think the legacy of what we had i mean uh, maybe it's better left to mystery i don't know you know well, word of mouth was always what got people to come to see us play because there was no social media and uh nowadays i don't know if our stuff would have been uh the way i like to explain it is if someone came out to our show and was trying to tell their friend on their landline uh to come check us out because we had movies and strobe lights and this chick and the and this stuff and this you know there's no way really with words to describe what we did but if there was uh, a bunch of people with cameras uh, you know holding them in front of your face while you're trying to watch a show then everybody would be like oh i see what they're doing i don't need to go out to that and it sounds so good over my phone uh you know so i, I think uh i think we just got to live in a golden era to where people could build it up with words and you had to actually come see it in order to understand it and nowadays everything's a little bit watered down because everybody wants to uh uh they film stuff and i don't think they go home and watch it on their phone they film it so they can show other people and then other people think they've already seen it and uh that's probably not good for the industry as much uh as as uh as like say jack white i know we played melvin's rack and tours and he didn't want to have uh any cell phones he still doesn't and i think people misunderstood from what i understood 
why he was doing it. It wasn't because uh, people were going to send it ahead and then people would know the set list and then they wouldn't be able to see it. According to him, the whole idea was to uh, have people communicate with each other and not uh, be stuck on their phones, uh, say, watching this podcast or <laughs> or being on or being on Facebook or Instagram or Tic Tac or whatever that thing's called or whatever, you know, they just, he just wanted people to engage with each other. And uh, I will admit that when I got up on stage and everybody was talking to each other before we played, that was a nice feeling to know that people still cared enough uh, to spend time with each other and not be just addicted to their phone. Uh, while they play and that was his his according to him that was his reasoning behind it so yeah it's, it's kind of a you have to learn to live with with what's around us now but it sure does take some of the steam out of uh some of the locomotives of bands that are out there now that if you just saw them for the first time without having any clue as to what you were getting into you'd be way more blown away i think yeah like i i totally agree that there's uh a mystery that's kind of taken out of it by some of that stuff or like a level of intrigue that's taken out of it. But, you know, like kind of like with the sex pistols, like there's, you can't imagine the sex pistols existing any other time in any other era, but right. the time and era they, they existed in And same with the butthole surfers, like this band of like completely free spirits roaming around Ronald Reagan's America on acid, you know, like it, it just doesn't exist in a world where you can follow Google maps on a phone. <laughs> Well, that's that's actually where uh, where Paul's head was at when he wanted us to do a resurgence back in the day uh, when when uh, Trump was in office. He thought that uh, I mean, you know, like during the Clinton years and Obama years, butthole surfers is not as shocking as during Reagan years and Trump years. Uh, so whatever your political affiliation is, I don't really care. Uh, but but it is. Uh, it is more of a breeding ground for people probably in the, you know, Reagan, Trump eras, uh, Bush eras to embrace the weirdness that we had as opposed to uh, a more liberal social uh, vibe going on when, when other people are in office. Oh yeah. Well, it's like it, at a time when Tipper Gore's got the PMRC and right. Nancy Reagan saying, uh, don't do drugs, you know, and, and drug-free America. I can't picture a fan that flies more in the face of both of those than the butthole surfers. Uh, Jello Biafra said that when they uh, came in and raided his house, that they were going through his album collection. And they got to, um, I mind you, I was not on this album, but they got to, uh, I believe, another man's sack, uh, butthole surfers. And uh, and uh, looked at him and said, "I bet you know these guys." And but there's no, there weren't that we didn't cuss on our records. We didn't do anything on our records. The name might be disturbing to people, but there was no bleep beep 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 stuff on there and you know, stuff that needed to be censored by any means. It was just the idea of us being out there that made people uncomfortable, which is a, a total different style of uh music than people that are just being offensive to to be offensive well just to wrap it up it's like we were talking about in the beginning like you know if you can if you can shock people and offend people just with your art and just with your presence like that that shows that you're maybe doing something right well, i think there's yeah there's always people like we talked about earlier that uh 
that feel like they're not so out of place when they when they realize that there's someone out there that's putting themselves out there publicly that's that uh that maybe doesn't fit in in the same way as as uh, a lot of other people are i don't know that's it was kind of pretentious i guess but uh but to me it's it's uh you know there's there's many different ways to go about this life and i think we re- just represented one of them you know well anytime you want to come back here and represent some of the other ones please know you're always welcome hey thanks so much i really appreciate you having me on here man thank you jd for coming on the show when you heard right there We've got a part three. We're going to, Walter and him will come on together. We've got lots of stuff planned for the future. Uh, check out more information about Jeffrey Pincus over there at jdpincus.com. You can find out more information over at Shimmy Discs about uh, upcoming shows that he's going to be doing. And you can also find him on uh, Instagram. He's got a really lovely little Instagram to follow along with his tour updates and whatnot. All right. On to the next show. On the next episode of Turned Out a Punk. This is a wild one. Tiffany Darwish will be on the show. And this is a this is a really fun conversation with, with a huge pop star. Someone that changed the game for pop music and claims punk. And you will hear it all on the next episode. I'm excited for you to hear it. Well, that is that. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives and issues of indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights and stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths and different religions and just knock all that hateful fascist bullshit off because at the end of the day, we're not talking about political issues. These are basic human rights issues. People have the right to be able to live free from hate and violence and discrimination. Uh, I, I add to that, and I think many people add to that, that what people want to do with the reproductive systems is also a human rights choice. So for that, get involved in organizations that are making positive change in this world. If there's somewhere out, something out there that you feel strongly about, chances are there are people already kind of working in that world, and maybe you can get involved and lend your time, your support, your money, whatever whatever you can do, you know, start making the world a little bit of, of a better place. Speaking of making things a little bit better, anyone can make this culture in punk. Anyone can do this stuff. So start a band, start a fanzine, start a podcast, maybe not a podcast, no, start a podcast, start a record label, put on shows, advocate, advocate for change, advocate, 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 advocate. Anyway, get involved. Try meditation. I didn't believe in this stuff, and and I find for me it really does help. So there's lots of apps you can try. There's YouTube videos. There's all sorts of things you can try. So try meditation. Maybe it'll work for you. Speaking of doing things, sign your organ donor cards, because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them. And it can save someone else's life. So sign those organ donor cards whenever and wherever you can. And I think that is that for me. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I will see you on the next episode.